The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's ask God's help again. Father, every moment that your word is open before your people, every Lord's Day, when a pastor stands in a pulpit, we engage in real spiritual warfare. Recognizing that we battle not only our own flesh, but a very real enemy. One who seeks to destroy us, to snatch this word up before it can find good soil in our heart. One who lies and tempts and in every way seeks to undo the working of your word by the power of your spirit. So we pray that you come now, that you would grant us the victory, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe what you have said, that you would speak it boldly. God, we ask this for your glory and our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So if you talk with anybody that's been a pastor for more than a cup of coffee, they will tell you that the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's is always low attendance Sunday. And so they tell you when you're planning out your sermons for the year that you need to take that Sunday and view it almost as, I wouldn't say a throwaway Sunday, but, but don't, don't bring to your people anything that's too meaty, of too much substance, or that's too important. The kind of thing that you think that the entirety of the church needs to hear, because many of your church members are going to be traveling, some will be sick, again, some will just be exhausted from the Chris, Christmas hubbub. But I didn't go to preacher school, and I don't know how to follow any of the preacher rules and so instead, what we're going to do is we're going to get right back into our verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Ephesians. And what we're going to find here is going to be something quite meaty and extremely challenging. So I ask you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Stand to your feet once you've found it. Ephesians chapter 4. Those are words you've probably longed to hear for many months. I think this morning we're just going to read the first six verses. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God. We must receive it as such. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
So as you have been anticipating and as I've been promising you, we come here this morning with this first verse in Ephesians chapter 4 to a very real turning point in Paul's letter to this church. Now with the possible exception of Paul's letter to the Romans, what we find here is some of the richest and, and most, most lofty of theology in the whole of the New Testament. It, it shouldn't have surprised us one bit that when we came to the end of chapter 3, we found this great doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As I, as I concluded those words, I, I couldn't help but, but feel, as I, as I thought back on all these, I think it's been 81 sermons that have, that have come before, I, I couldn't help but feel as though my heart was, was, was swooning within me. As I thought back to the work of the triune God and our redemption, how the Father had chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. How the Son had come some 2,000 years ago to purchase that redemption by His own blood. All of our gifts and all of, our, all of the blessings that come as a result of that is Paul sweeps us up into heaven and he shows us from eternity past, stretching into eternity future, this one-sided rescue mission of the triune God coming to rescue and redeem His people. The privileges of access to God and a place in His family. The unity that we enjoy in a, in a body just like this. And over all of it, this picture, this revelation of God's infinite glory. At times, if you're like me, you probably looked up throughout these three chapters we studied together and thought, am I really meant to see this? It was as though you, you were peeking into something that should be off limits for finite human eyes. And so surely you can relate to the mindset of the Apostle Paul and excuse me, the Apostle Peter and, and James and John as they were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. As Peter looks and says, Lord, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But the scripture says he didn't realize what he was saying. He says, this is the most beautiful thing my eyes have ever beheld. I've never seen glory like this. Don't make me leave. Don't make me come down off this mountain. I don't, I don't want to go back and deal with the world because they're mean and they're loud. And they're hard to deal with. But that wasn't an option. Not only was it not an option for Christ Jesus because of the work that lay before him, it wasn't an option for his apostles either. You remember then as Jesus ascended into heaven, Remember as he was taken up and, and hidden behind the clouds and the apostles are, are standing there and then suddenly beside them there are two men in white robes and what, what did they say to the apostles? Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking into heaven? Boys, there's work to do. Get busy. Quit gawking. Yes, this is awesome. Yes, it is meant to transform your life. No, go put it to use. And we, under, we understand the difficulty. It's incredibly challenging to live as a Christian in a world that's under the power of the evil one. But Paul knows it, just remaining in our back study, that that's not really an option. That this theology that we have just studied together, it's meant to be applied to the whole of our life and to the whole of this world. You remember how the Apostle Paul, after his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, he went and he spent three years out in Arabia. And in the years that followed, as, as this gospel was revealed to him by God, 
that the purpose in this wasn't just to build a theological library in his head. It wasn't just to make him the, the smartest theologian that had, ever, that had ever lived. The purpose was that he could then run this race, that he could fight the fight, that he could walk the walk of faith. So at the end of his life, we could rightly say of him that he had been wrung out and used up for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so we, we see the picture in Paul there as he encounters Christ Jesus and he knows that his eternity is sealed and he knows that his, his treasure is secured all because of what Christ has done. And therefore, there's nothing he can actually lose. There's nothing to be lost. But beyond this, he knows that his life is no longer his own. He knows that he's been purchased at a price. And so everything that he has and everything that he is and every last moment that's been given to him, it's be used for the glory of God and the salvation of his people. You can almost, you almost hear as you read through the book of Acts and you watch Paul's journey, you can almost hear him constantly asking himself, how can I use my time? How can I use this moment? How can I use this talent to further this kingdom? How can I use everything that he's given me to the pleasure of my king? But that this wasn't just subservience. This wasn't just a slave doing the bidding of his master, but this was a son doing the pleasure of his father, knowing that this was the only path to true happiness. What, what is the essence of sin? What is at the heart of sin? Is it not failure to bask in the glory of God? Failure to come and enjoy that which is truly meant to satisfy us? Therefore, what is the pursuit of holiness? What does it mean to walk out a life of true holiness before the eyes of the watching world other than pursuing after that, that which leads to joy? So he knows that this is the only path of real joy and happiness in this life. Now, there is a ditch over there. There is that ditch, and in my experience, it's the must much more common ditch for people to land in. It's the, the ditch of zeal without knowledge. People who have a desire, a, a true sincere desire for obedience and for holiness, but without any understanding of everything that comes before it. It's the mind that's fallen for the lie of the enemy, that theology, that actually trying to figure out what this word actually means by what it actually says isn't helpful. You'll hear catchphrases from people like this. They'll say things like, doctrine divides. I'm just going to devote myself to loving God and, and loving man. But they don't know what love actually looks like. They don't know who man actually is and what his problem actually is. They don't understand who this God is that they're meant to love. And so Paul has made clear all throughout these, this first half of his letter to Ephesians, Paul has made clear that his deepest desire for us is that we would grow in our knowledge and in our understanding. That we would press on by the power of the Spirit to become skilled in the Word. That we, would, that we would find ourselves grounded and rooted in this robust understanding of the things of God that prevent us from being tossed to and fro by, by winds and waves of emotion and lies and experiences. We've witnessed what happens when people are lacking in this. You've all had that heartbreaking experience of walking through life with people that had all the outward evidences, all, all the outward appearance of, of true spiritual maturity. But then as soon as hardship came, as soon as they didn't get their way, as soon as they were challenged, the whole thing came unraveled. Their faith didn't hold up to the tests and the trials of real life. They were, they were good as hot houseplants. 
They were good as long as everything was steady and still and in accordance with their will and their desire. But the minute that suffering came, the minute that challenges came, they proved themselves not to be rooted and grounded in a robust understanding of who God is and what is this gospel that we proclaim. Now, now that's the far more common scenario. And sadly, we've, we've all seen it play out in various ways. But for our church, for First Baptist Church of Crosby in specific, in, in the way that God has created us, there's another ditch over there. And it's every bit as dangerous of a ditch. It's a ditch of, of a life that's devoted to study, to theology and hermeneutics and doctrine that stays in the mind but never affects the living of life. Now, Paul nor any of the apostles that followed the Lord Jesus Christ knew anything about a Christianity like this, a monkish Christianity, a Christianity that just wants to pull away from the world and just spend the rest of his life in solitude and in, and in study. It feels very high-minded to say, oh, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of use for the things of the world. I'm just going to go spend time alone with God. I'm going to spend time alone studying the higher things of heaven. Inevitably, they turn their life into just a never-ending Bible study. It's a Christianity that doesn't affect the life. It's a Christianity that doesn't transform us in any real appreciable way. A Christianity that doesn't drive us to good works. It's a theological pride that allows us to mask our own selfishness. A theological pride that allows us to mask a disobedient heart. So what we've got to see is the way in which Scripture, it bluntly rejects and condemns both ditches. What did we read that first week of Advent as we came to John's second epistle? What did, what did we find there? He says, look, if there's a people who claim a Christ other than the Christ of Scripture, have nothing to do with them. Don't let them in your house. Don't wish them well. Don't bless them, lest you be seen to be participating in their works. And it isn't over just our Christology. What does Paul say in Galatians? Galatians 1, he says, look, if anybody, even an angel, comes and preaches a gospel contrary to what you've heard from me, let them be accursed. And unless we misunderstand, he comes back and says, I said it to you once and now I say it again. If anyone preaches another gospel, let them be accursed. That's this ditch. But then again, there's this other ditch. And what did that same apostle Paul say in the fifth letter of fifth chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians? He said, I hear there's a guy that has taken his wife. Uh, I always get it confused. Taken his father's wife, his stepmom. He took his stepmom to himself. That's gross. You people are proud. You should kick him out. Or what does the Lord Jesus say in Matthew 18 about whenever we come and we confront a brother over and over again with their sin and they refuse to repent? Eventually, what do we do? We treat them like a non-believer because they prove themselves to be non-believers. He says to Timothy towards the end of his life, 2 Timothy 3, he says, there's going to be people who are lovers of self and lovers of money, proud and arrogant and abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with people like this. Do you see? People who preach a false gospel, people who follow a Christ who does not actually exist and who cannot actually save have nothing to do with them. And people who claim the name of Christ, who are very orthodox in their understanding of the scriptures, 
whose confession is every bit what you would expect from a follower of Christ, but that doesn't match the way of their life, have nothing to do with them. Do you understand? doesn't matter how orthodox your confession. As John says, whoever says, I know Christ, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And so we must be both a people who are ever growing in our knowledge of Christ and ever increasing in our obedience to him. Both at the same time. So the Apostle Paul, he not only stretches, he not only stresses both of these things, he always keeps them in the proper order. B.B. Warfield once said that knowing leads to being and being leads to doing for the true Christian. So, so the way that the Apostle Paul lays this out, we've seen it. The first three verses, of, uh, chapters of Ephesians, what is it? Every bit of it is the indicative, the things that have been, all that God has done and who we're meant to be in him. The last three chapters, the imperative, the commandments, the things that we're meant to do. Romans lays out the same way. Chapters 1 through 11, theology. 12 through 16, application. Galatians, Colossians, same way. Doctrine and devotion. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. It's always who you are in Christ before going and living that thing out. That's always the pattern. If we get the pattern backwards, we end up with childish and unstable believers at best, but hypocrites and false believers at worst. People who have based the entirety of their salvation on pixie dust. Bible words that sound good and that tickle the ears, but don't actually amount to anything. And so then they come to the second half of a letter like Ephesians, and it just sounds like scattered commandments. They, they don't understand how they're meant to obey or why they're meant to obey the things that God is commanding them to do. And so what we find them doing then is they go and they take the good fruit that they know that they're meant to produce. They take the oranges of good fruit and they staple it onto lemon trees. And they wonder why they find no joy and they wonder why their life feels futile. But if we never move from doctrine, if we never move from the theology onto the practice, instead what we end up is cold and lifeless and useless. We end up being the kind of men that prove that we love theology more than we love God that's revealed in his word. So Paul doesn't stop at chapter 3. Therefore, neither must we. He doesn't skip the first three chapters, as many like to do. But he also doesn't stop at the end of three chapters, as our heart might tell us to do. So what we're going to find here is that the first 16 verses of chapter 4, it gives us a very broad picture of what this way is meant to look like. He's going to focus especially, and I find this to be pretty telling. Like, look, if you're, if you're beginning the practical portion of your epistle. If you've laid out all this theology and now you're going to show your people how to walk, where would you begin? Commandments not to lie, not to cheat, not to steal, something against drunkenness maybe? Where does he begin? He begins on a call to unity and maturity. He begins by talking about who we're meant to be as a body and the gifts that God has given us in order to accomplish that unity and that maturity. And then in the rest of the book, basically, after verse 16, it's going to be specific applications for godly living. It's going to cover everything from family life to work life and, and everything in between. Now, I know that for some of you, because I've, I've heard this, I know some of you, you've been chomping at the bit for some application. You, you come on Sunday mornings and you hear this high-minded theology, and you, you do. You feel like we've been swept up into heavenly places and given a view of, of your salvation that really is unparalleled. And you say, yes, I get it. I, I get it. 
I see all the things that God has done. Now tell me what to do with it. Tell me how to put it to practice. So for those of you, and really for the, for the rest of us, I guess, I need to warn you that much of what we're going to find in these next three chapters is really going to sting. I don't anticipate that any of us get out of here unscathed. And I say this with direct knowledge because I myself have not been unscathed, even in my own studies. As I've sorted through what the Apostle Paul says here, I find with almost every word a dagger to my heart. Confronting me even in areas where I thought I had this thing nailed. Like I was aware of these big chunk of sins over here and I'm just, I was constantly making war and, and, and repenting and asking God's strength and dealing with these things. But I kind of thought I had some of these other things settled and then I came to God's word and by the power of his spirit I realized I'm a mess. So there's surely going to be times throughout these next, I don't know how long it'll take us. I don't think, just for your awareness, I don't think that it's going to take us two years to cover the second half of Ephesians like it did the first. I have a, I have a sense that there are going to be some bigger chunks that we're able to take, but let's call it a year and a half. There's going to surely be times over this next year and a half when some of you are going to want to put your fingers in your ear and run out of this place. There are also going to be times when some of you in this room are going to resent me because I'm the man standing up here saying these words to you. But again, I remind you that God has saved you for holiness. What did he say? Going back to the beginning of this letter, it says that he has chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. There's a, there's a positional holiness and blamelessness that is already ours in Christ Jesus. In the eyes of God as you are in Christ, you'll never be more holy than you are. You can't be more holy than infinitely holy as you are in Christ. But there's also a practical holiness that he's working out in the here and now. That's why he goes on to say in chapter 2, Ephesians 2.10, that we are his workmanship. Do you remember that word was in Greek? It was poem. You're his poem. You're a story that God is writing. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So with that in mind... I wrestled with whether or not even to bring this back up because the reality is that many of you in this room weren't here for, the, for our study of uh, Mark's gospel. But for the sake of my own conscience, I need to apologize for back when we were in Mark chapter 8 and I was in the second of my three sermons on divorce and I was expressing to you what I saw very plainly in scripture that there are no grounds for remarriage, that divorce is... With the, with the single exception of abandonment, there is no place for divorce in the Christian life. And if you remember, as I preached that sermon, I stood up here in this place and I cried like a baby. And I need to seek your, your forgiveness. I need to apologize to you for that, not just because it distracted, it took the attention off of the word and put it on to me, but it certainly did that. Because as I stood in this place, I gave you the impression that I did not love God's law. And the proof of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, I suppose I proved that I didn't. More than that, I proved that I didn't love you the way that I claimed. I only loved myself. Because what actually drove me to those tears is I've looked back in retrospect. I told myself, oh, you stood there and you cried because you're so broken hearted for the people that you love. Can I tell you the truth? 
I was brokenhearted for myself because I was going to have to be the one to wound you. If I love you the way that I say that I love you, more than that, if I love God and I trust his word the way that I say I trust God's word, then I present to you his unvarnished truth. And, and I trust that if his word wounds you, that it's for your good and it's for his glory. If, if I love you, I'm going to back you into a corner. I'm going to push you up against this word and force you to ask the question of yourself. Do I desire to honor God more than I desire my own comfort? Do I submit to Christ as king more than I trust my own eyes and my own heart? Now, that question in of itself should radically change some lives, because here's the truth of the matter. I look back over the course of my own life in those matters of greatest disobedience. And what do I find there that I didn't know what God demanded of me? Surely not. So much of what God demands in his word is so clear and so plain and so obvious. The problem is my own lying heart, my stubbornness and my weakness and my sin. It, it really is. I'm, I'm sitting here just thinking how remarkable it is that so many people look back on what we've studied in these first three chapters and they go, oh, that's hard stuff. That's that's hard stuff. This stuff is so much harder for me. I find myself so much more battling my own sin and my own pride and my own desire to be liked as I come to texts like this. And so I do ask you to pray for me as your pastor as we walk through these. I'm the mountaintop guy. I'm the guy that wants to stay up there with Jesus. But he won't allow us. So Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now this therefore, as I've already said, it, you people who've been around long enough, you know the way we study scripture, that therefore immediately causes your antennas to go up. And you know that it ties together everything that comes next to everything that came before. And this, this shows us a couple of things. It shows us not only that we can't skip to chapter 4 and, and pass over all the theology that comes before, but it also shows us that there's a natural flow to it. These things are connected. There, there's a connection here that's meant to be seen. And if you can see the connection, it makes the obedience easier. If you can see the connection, it tells you the, the why and the purpose behind what you're doing. And so the Apostle Paul, by inserting the word therefore here, he's pointing back to everything that I've just told you. Everything that Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Now, the transition, it is clear, but it isn't absolute. It's not as though there's only doctrine and no practice in the first three chapters. And it's not as though there's only practice and no doctrine in the last three, uh, last three uh, chapters. There was, you remember, one command in the first three chapters. You remember what it was? That one imperative that we found there, it was the call to remember. An interesting commandment. Remember who you once were and remember what God has saved you from. Remember who you were without hope and without God in the world until Christ came and he ransomed you. So what you find is, is that Paul's theology is always meant to be practical and his practice is always doctrinal. And so he comes here with this, therefore, he's making clear to us that for the believer, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it radically changes our relationship to the law, the law and our inability to keep it. 
the law and the curse that it places us under because we walk in sin and because we can't keep the thing perfectly. It's meant to drive us to Christ. Here's the reality. There are surely some within our congregation, not just speaking of children, but maybe grown adults who have claimed the name of Christ who might come to an awareness that they're not actually in him. There are some here who are trying to figure out what do I believe about this Christ? And so as we walk through and we preach these commandments, what's meant to happen is as you hold them up against your own life, as you recognize, I can't do it. I can't climb this ladder. If this is what it takes to get to God, I can't climb this ladder and I can't get to God. More than this, as I hold this word before you, as I, as I bring these commandments before you and you find your heart getting angry, and frustrated and making excuses to try to explain why that can't be what that word actually means. It reveals to you the desperate need that you have for regeneration, to be made into something new and for someone else to keep that law for you. It drives you to Christ. Then as you come to Christ and you recognize all that he has done in the cross, you see his perfect righteousness. You see the way in which he has taken that curse upon himself. You hear the promise that he will make you alive together with him. You find yourself enabled by the spirit of God and set free from the snare of the devil. All of a sudden, for the first time in your life, you're able to love and obey the law of God. You've died to the law in one sense. It can't touch you. It can't condemn you. It can't be used against you. But in another way, you're alive to it for the first time. Because of who you are in Christ, your relationship is now in a proper order to the law of God. Your motives for obedience are proper for the first time. You find yourself with a steady footing and a grounding from which to walk in obedience. You're enabled for the first time, not just to delight in the law, but to walk in it and to obey it. For the first time in your life, true holiness begins to make sense. Practical, here and now kind of holiness seems to make sense. That's everything that's tied up in this therefore, therefore, because of and in light of this. And this was the promise of the new covenant. As you go back into the Old Testament, you think about what did God promise to his people? When Jesus Christ came and he sat with his with his friends there in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed and he and he first gave us the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And he said, I'm I'm inaugurating on this night by my blood, this new covenant. What was it that he was pointing back to? Jeremiah 31 says that this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In short, he's saying that which I will do will enable your walking. That your holiness, any holiness we enjoy in this life, it's a gift from God. It's a work of the spirit. So he says, pursue holiness because I've made you holy. Walk in holiness because I've given you legs to walk this thing out. So if we miss the therefore, we end up in absolute frustration. If you miss the therefore, the best you can land on is legalism and pietism. Outward obedience with a heart that's far from God. And so what you'll find is in the world world of the legalist, there is no therefore. 
But the Christian life, it always has a therefore. It, it should affect the way that we discipline our children. Don't do that. And let me tell you why. God has commanded you against this. And let me tell you how. Always driving them back to the cross of Jesus Christ and the way in which his doing, his done, all that he has accomplished enables this life. I want you to think back to the paralyzed man that we looked at in Mark chapter 2. When was that? Christmas Eve? Something like that. We look back to the paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2 and all he could do was lay there in the mat. There was nothing he could do for himself. And he comes to Christ Jesus and what does the Lord tell him? He tells him what he has done for him. And then he commands the man to get up and to walk, having compassion on the man. The man gets up, he takes his mat, and he walks. A thing that was utterly impossible, unthinkable. A thing the man had surely not tried to do. He knew his legs didn't work, so he stopped trying. He didn't try to push himself up off the mat any longer. He knew this thing is impossible. But now by the power of the word of Christ, it was very much doable. It was very much normal. And I ask you, I suppose, this morning, for that man that got up, for that man that maybe for the first time in his life was able to walk by these newly empowered legs that Christ had given him, do you believe that the commandments of God to get up and walk were burdensome? Do you think by the second day or the third day he was thinking, man, I'm tired of this walking. I wish people would go back to carrying me again. No, surely he delighted in the command that he had received from God. And so this is the pattern. Christ enables us by way of the commandment. He comes by his word and the working of his spirit and he gives us the ability to hear his voice, to rejoice in his commandments, and then to do, to walk. While just as in the story of the paralyzed man, the watching world, they marvel. Who is this? I didn't know a man that lived like this kind of holiness. I didn't know a man that had this kind of obedience before. Surely he has been with Christ. Surely he's had a work done in him. So he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he refers to himself here, Paul does, as a prisoner of the Lord. And this is not the first time that Paul mentions his imprisonment. You remember back in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So why does he mention it again here? I heard a couple of pastors and a, and a commentator or two say that they believe that the reason he mentions this here is to make clear why he has the right to issue these commandments. And so what Paul's saying is, I'm a prisoner for your sake. Look at what it has cost me to get this gospel to you. Therefore, I've earned the right to tell you these hard things. But, but I, I think that is absolutely wrong and, and backwards. I, I do think that they are meant to see his imprisonment and recognize that the one who calls them to these hard things has proven his love. And I do think absolutely that they are meant to appreciate all that this ministry cost him. But the authority of Paul's words, they don't come from anything that Paul has done or suffered. Paul's authority comes from Christ. How did he begin the letter that he's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God? Paul was Christ's chosen and authorized representative. These inspired words that he recorded for us, they carry with them Christ's authority. This is the word of God breathed out and spoken through man. Now, if we don't get this rightly, we end up in all kind of wonky places. Look at the world around us. I saw a meme one time that it was, it was stair steps to apostasy. 
It was some of those common statements that you'll hear from the, from the mouths of pastors or, or confessing Christians that before long ends up with them completely denouncing, renouncing the faith. And one of those very first stair steps in this meme, however true it is, I'll leave it up to you to decide. But one of those very first stair steps in this meme was, oh, that was only the words of Paul, not Christ. Because you see, there's things that Paul directs directly that people's hearts don't like. And so they say, well, I just reject it. That's just Paul. I'm going to stick with the red letters. I'm going to stick with the commandments of Christ and leave Paul to the rest of you. Don't you see how foolish this is? It leaves us with a word that is not all inspired by God. This is not all his authorized word carrying the full authority of Christ. But in addition to this, what does it do to the pastor? What does it do to his relationship to his people? If, if I can only speak on things for which I have suffered... If I can only speak about things which I've earned the right to speak on, then it leaves you in a place where you sit there and we come to some of, listen, some of the things that Paul talks about, no, I've not yet walked through. Some of the things that God has revealed, some of the commandments that he's made, they're not a particular struggle for me. And so the heart that, that, that says you can only speak to me if you have walked through this, you sit there and then you reject it. Who are you to speak to me? You walk in my shoes. You suffer as I have suffered. You experience the loss that I have suffered. You fight the fights that I have fought, and then you can speak. But if the authority is in the word itself, if the authority comes in the one who has spoken, then surely we're all commanded to obey. And I don't then have to stand up here and feel bashful, and I'll tell you that you do. You feel bashful speaking about things that you've not had to suffer through. You feel bashful talking about things that you've not particularly struggled with. You feel bashful speaking about things that you've not fully succeeded in. Listen, you realize that I'm going to have to get up here and talk to you about a husband leading his wife, washing her with the word, leading her the way that Christ leads the church. I've got to look at my wife right now. I've got to look at y'all and say, I've not perfectly succeeded in this. Or he talks about not bringing his children to wrath. Do you know how often I annoy my children for the sake of my own entertainment? I've got to be able to get up here and speak these words and you've got to be able to receive them. Not because I've done them perfectly. Not because I've accomplished it fully. But because it comes from the words of your Savior. I mean, the mouth of your Savior. It's the word of your Lord. Do you understand? So the authority of Paul's word isn't wrapped up in something that Paul has experienced or done or suffered. It's tied up in the fact that it's the word of God. So why then the reference? Why, why does Paul speak like this? I believe that Paul is talking again about his imprisonment to remind these believers that obedience to Christ as Lord in a very real way puts you at odds with the world. What did he say to Timothy towards the end of his life? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I need you to listen to me. This generation that we are now, I believe, coming out of has been suddenly convinced that Christianity is meant to be confined to the walls of the sanctuary or our living rooms. They've learned to preach this floaty and nebulous and vague gospel that doesn't have anything to say outside of our own heart and our own home. And so there is still this call to evangelism. We're still called to invite people to enjoy eternal life. And we can even make some vague reference to sin, but we've got to figure out how to do it without actually addressing any real sins. 
We're meant to lead people to Christ and we're meant to call people to repentance without ever actually telling them the specific things that they're meant to repent of. And then when we do, then when we find that the gospel does have something to say outside the walls of just this building or outside just our living room, what we'll find is even those within the church start fussing at us, stick to the gospel. Stick to the gospel, preach the gospel. And what they mean by that is a gospel that never offends. A gospel that is never a stumbling block. And so I, I think that it's because of that, because of this preaching of this unoffensive and, and bashful kind of gospel that, that many professing Christians, we've become bashful in our own lives. Not, not just with regards to evangelism, but we have self-imposed these great limits on how public and widespread this Christian life is meant to be lived. How public can my theology actually be? And so there's areas of life and there's, there's areas of the public domain where we're not willing to let the light of Christ shine because deep down and subconsciously we know that darkness hates the light. And we've been taught that if those around us are offended... If those around us demand that what we call love be called hate, then we must be wrong. And so we've got to backpedal and we've got to change our lives and we've got to, we've got to change our tactics. And so before long, without any real awareness, we've created two worlds. There's this private, spiritual, and religious world. And then there's this public world, this life that's lived out there in the, in the public square. So here's the way we've got to address this. We, we come to these words that Paul is preaching. And look, he's preaching first to our own heart. If you find yourself in the months to come hearing these commandments from Paul, hearing the word of God calling us to a life of holiness, and your first thought is, man, I can't wait to go tell somebody else. If you're thinking about who in this room needs to hear this word, then you've lost the plot. He's speaking to your own heart. This sword is meant to pierce your own soul. He's doing surgery on you. So yes, absolutely, it begins with ourself and it begins with a self-assessment. It begins with coming before God and saying, all that I have belongs to you and you need to show me what doesn't belong here. But you've got to understand that the apostle Paul, he was not thrown into prison because he had a quiet time each morning and he accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. And John the Baptist was in equal parts hated and feared by Herod Antipas because he chose to be a holy weirdo in his time off. Because whenever he had some vacation days, he went out in the wilderness and ate locusts and drank honey. And just, I love honey. I don't know why that's considered weird. But wore itchy clothes. The fact of the matter is the apostle Paul was ultimately executed because he proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord and he did it publicly. And he did it loudly. And he did it persistently. And John the Baptist had his head chopped off because he loved Herod enough and he feared God enough that he looked at the man and said, you can't take your brother's wife to be your own. Ultimately, these men were persecuted and despised and killed because they allowed the truth of the gospel to dominate every single area of their life. They didn't bifurcate. They didn't put churchy and spiritual things over here, then leave them at the door while they went out in the world just because the world hated what it meant. You've got to understand, this is what we're trying to teach our kids and tell us. This is the whole purpose of a starting a classical Christian school. Not to get them thrown in prison, although that day may come. 
but to show them how the gospel is meant to change every single area of their life. There's a, there's a book, it's a really short book, it's called the Didache. We don't know when it was written, probably sometime around the year 100, so pretty, pretty close within the life, pretty early within the life of the church. And there's, there's a title to it. It says, The Teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles by the Twelve Apostles. But, but the very first sentence in the very first chapter of the Didache says this, There are two ways, one of life and one of death, and between those two ways, there is a great difference. We're not talking about minor differences here. So what we're trying to help these children to see is that the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, it changes everything. That they're meant to sanctify every single area of their life. And so what we're trying to show them and what I hope to show you is that that one who has been raised from the dead, he is Lord over reading and writing and history and political science and math and regular science and physical fitness and finance and relationships and art and music and drama and all the rest of the world, both seen and unseen. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So what's it just the words of a theologian? What did Paul say? He said that Christ Jesus has been raised in place far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every other name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. That the Father has put under his feet all things. Do you see it? He is Lord of all. He's not just Lord of the church house, and he's not just Lord of your heart. He's Lord of the universe. He's not just Lord of Bible study, and he's not just Lord of prayer time. He's Lord of work. He's Lord of politics. He's Lord of sport. He's Lord of finance. He's Lord of everything. It's going to radically transform the way you live your life. And we get back to the picture in the Garden of Eden. What was the commission from God to his first people? Bear my image. Reflect my glory. Go to the ends of the earth that the world may see my holiness and my worth and my beauty. And so whenever we do this, we've got to understand that there's a seed of the serpent. If we seek to do this and spread God's glory in every area of life, that what we're going to find is that we're at war. Personally, yes, we're at war with our own flesh that says, but I don't want this. And yes, we're at war with the spiritual enemy, the seed of the serpent. The one who hates the woman and hates her children. The one who would destroy God if he could. But we must also understand that we're going to be at war with the world. As we seek to live and walk in holiness and in love, really honoring Christ in all of our life. Those who don't want Christ to reign as Lord, don't want anyone to reign as Lord over their life, they're going to hate it. But because as... As I said in the beginning, holiness, if, if, if holiness really is the pursuit of that which looks like Christ, really enjoying him and delighting in his glory, and the opposite of that, if the, the root of sin is a rejection of the glory of God, then you see the way that these two things come into conflict, even when you're not looking to another and saying, repent and believe, even when you yourself are just trying to live a life of repentance and belief, you'll find rejection and you'll find hatred, and before too long, you'll find a loss of your freedom. 
And these things are not easy. They're never easy and never to be taken lightly. That's why Paul writes the way that he writes and prays the way that he prays. Remember what he was asking, that we would be strengthened in our inner man. Why? Because the greatest threat isn't that they throw you in jail. The greatest threat isn't that they chop your head off. The greatest threat is that you're weak on the inside. That as the world tells you to shut up, as the world tells you to keep your religion in your closet, as even many within the church tell you that you're being harsh or too demanding or that this holiness is off-putting to the world around you, there's going to be this temptation within you not to denounce Christ. I told you this before. The communist lines you up against the wall, puts a rifle to your head and says, renounce the name of Christ or die. Every one of you are taking the bullet. The harder thing comes when someone you love looks at you and says, you're a bigot. Your life is making me uncomfortable. And then everything within you starts wanting to back up, become bashful. The Apostle Paul knows this. He knows that his families are divided. He knows that his churches are split. He knows that his people walk away from the faith, that that's going to be the temptation to equivocate, to become bashful under the guise of the false promise of peace. That's the way that the devil works, right? He doesn't tell you that you're equivocating. He says, look, in the name of peace, those people are never going to hear you if they hate you. Those people are never going to hear you if they leave your church. Those people are never going to hear the gospel if they think that you're a, that you're a bigot or you're hateful. So why don't you just give a little bit here so that you can win the war later? Why don't you give a little bit here so they can hear the truth later? It never works. That's why Paul urges the way that he does. He says, I therefore, therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. I, I urge you. Now there is something to be said here about the way that Paul speaks, despite the fact that he has the full authority of Christ. He has every right to say, because Christ set me apart, because this is his authoritative word, I said so. But he knows that obedience has to come from the heart. That's the truth of the matter. He knows that if, if it's not from the heart, if it's not from a heart that loves Christ, it's not a heart that loves his law, then it's not true obedience. And so he doesn't say, I demand. He says, I urge, I beseech, I plead, I implore with you. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now this idea of walking, it's interesting. He didn't choose fighting and he didn't choose running and he didn't choose climbing a mountain. He chose the most ordinary, everyday thing, walk. Just as Christ in his great commission said, as you go, because guess what? People be going. Everybody's walking. And he's saying here there, that there's a stride and there's a pattern and there's a frequency and there's a, there's a cadence to your life. You remember as we went back and talked about the ways we're not meant to walk in the first half of Ephesians, I, I talked about how you can tell a whole lot by a man's stride. Remember those people that were walking in their deadness? They were, they were dead because of sins and trespasses, and yet they still walked. And I, I, I made reference to every zombie movie you've ever seen. A dude comes down the hall and you know immediately, that dude's a zombie. Because there's something about his stride and there's something about his walk and his cadence and his pattern. I told you how people that know a lot about physiology is it physiology? What's the study of the human body? Anatomy. Anatomy. Yeah. You, can, you can see somebody running and you can see something about their gait and you know, oh, they've got this issue. There's a, there's a thing about the way a man walks and the way, the way he strides, it reveals a whole lot about something deeper that's going on within him. So he says, I want you to walk in a certain way. Now, this picture of walking, it's used both positively and negatively in Paul's writings. 
Again, going back to the second chapter, Ephesians 2.1, he says, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In verse 17 of chapter 4, he's going to say, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. But then he's going to talk about some specific ways we're meant to walk. In 5.2, he says to walk in love. In 5.8, he says to walk as children of the light. In 5.15, he says to walk in wisdom. Everybody walks one way or another. There are two ways of life, one of Two ways to live, one of life, one of death, and between the two, there's great difference. Everybody's walking one way or another. You're either walking in life or you're walking in death. He's saying you're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And we'll have to come back to this. I had a different plan for tonight, but I think I'm going to have to come back and dig in a little more on this, looking at the time. But he's, he's talking about the calling to which we have been called. And that word for calling there. The King James translates it vocation. And you've heard it used like this. Someone will say, I finally found my calling in life. And they found a job that they really feel like they've been built for. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. I've found my calling or my purpose in life. And as you think back to everything that we studied in the three chapters that came before this, everything that God has saved us for, all the work that he has carried out in our calling, that's what he's pointing to here. But, but the idea of a vocation or the idea of a calling like this, it might give us the impression that this is something that we just stumbled upon. Like it was a, a career day at the high school and we just selected the Christian calling. And so to make sure that we don't err in that direction, he makes clear that this is a calling to which we have been called. We're called out of darkness and into light. We're called from deadness and into life. We're once far off, but we have been called near. We were called into fellowship by his son. It was a powerful, efficacious calling of God that brought us into this calling. And so what the apostle Paul is saying here is, in light of this calling that God has called you for, make certain that you walk in a manner that is worthy. And we gotta be careful here. We hear walking in a manner that's worthy. And if, if we're not on guard, we can allow ourselves to believe what he's saying here is you've got to walk in a way that retroactively earns the salvation and the gifts and the glory that God has promised to you. That you've got to prove that you're worth saving. I, I was thinking about the end of the, I don't know if it's the end or not. Spoiler alert. Uh, saving Private Ryan. It's towards the end, right? Where Tom Hanks leans down to him and he says, what does he tell him? Earn this? They go through all this to save this one dude. All these other men are lost. All these lives are lost. All this suffering and trauma and heartache. They get to the guy and they save him. And Tom Hanks leans down to him and he says, earn this. That's not what Paul is saying. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. Not retroactively, not ever. It's the free gift of God. So what's he mean then when he talks about walk in a manner that's worthy? Well, the, the root Greek word for worthy has a picture of, of scales or specifically the balancing of scales. And so I need you to see this. On, on one side of this thing, you've got the infinite weight of the glories of Christ. You've got the infinite worth of all that is yours in Christ. You've got your own redemption having been redeemed by something so much more precious than silver or gold, but the precious blood of Christ. You've got this here, your calling, the weight of your calling. And over here, you've got your life. Again, you're never going to live a life that is deserving of all that you have been given. But what he's asking is, are the scales terribly unbalanced? 
Do you find that the worth and the weight and the value and the glory of all that is yours in Christ, it does not in any way match up with the life that you're living? Do you see it? That's the challenge. Do you come and bask in the glories of Christ and do you come and profess the greatness of this salvation that is yours only to turn around and walk like zombies? Only to turn around and walk like somebody that doesn't actually cherish these things that you claim for yourself. So as I said, we're going to get, as we work through the rest of this book, we're going to get to some specifics. But the reality is, Paul can't cover every single area of life. He doesn't cover not looking at ugly things on the internet. The internet didn't exist yet. He didn't cover whether or not it was a good idea to buy Bitcoin or not. Bitcoin didn't exist yet. He can't cover the full gamut, even of life in the ancient Near East. And so he takes this broad statement. He says, here is the standard. Here is the question that you must be asking yourself as you look to the whole of your life. Every area, nothing off limits. You look to the whole of your life and you ask of yourself, is this walk, is this manner of life, is this cadence, is the pattern of my life in a way that shows the preciousness of what I have in Christ Jesus? That's the litmus test. Now, the reality is we will always, always, always recognize that we're falling short. The challenge is, and the mark of a true believer is, is my response to that to dumb down the commandments and diminish what God is calling me to do in order to please him and to bring him honor and glory? Glory? Am I to reject it and pretend as though it's not there? Am I to resent the one who brings the word before me? Or am I going to cry out to the God of the universe, ask him to send his spirit to strengthen me and to actually bring me joy as I walk this thing out? Father, we love you and we thank you. God, as we come down to ground level where there is real pain and real sorrow and real struggle and real trial, real frustration and real loss, as we seek to actually live this thing out, God, we desperately need you. So I ask, Father, that you would come by your spirit and strengthen us in our inner man. I pray that you would give us hearts that delight in your law, even when those laws hit us right between the eyes. Father, I pray for those as we walk through this, those who, like me, are going to come to an awareness that there are sins we have committed, that there's just not any unscrambling the egg. I pray that you give us the ability to Lay those thing at your, things at your feet and trust that Christ has truly paid it all. For those of us that are going to be confronted with things that we can deal with, that we must deal with in the here and now, I pray that you give us the boldness to do that as well. I pray that you give us a, a patience and a sensitivity to one another as we walk through this, recognizing that many of us are going to leave this room feeling like we've just been laid bare, feeling as though the word of God has just assaulted us. So, Father, help us to be tender and patient and quick to bear with one another in our burdens. Father, we trust that in all this, you're working for our good. We ask that you do it now. In Jesus' name we pray.